Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll begin the reading there in verse, verse 21. And they, that would be Jesus and the disciples He just now called in the previous paragraph to follow Him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I I know who you are, the, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud spirit came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey Him. And at once His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told Him about her. And He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they were brought to Him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew Him. Father, we're thankful for Mark's Gospel to have it in our possession. Thankful for this glorious Savior that He presents to us. Thank You for the light You've given us. Thank You for the salvation we have in Him. We pray, Lord, exalt Your Son in this hour. And we pray You'd meet with us by Your Spirit. Help us to preach. Help us to hear. Help us to be impacted by Your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already seen here in rapid fashion Mark's introduction of John Baptist and then Jesus and his various preliminary activities before he started actually ministering to the people. Um, We looked last time at Jesus' call of his disciples there in the previous paragraph. And this is Mark's this is Mark's style. This is his writing style. He provides these brief little snapshots, these vignettes of, of the life of Christ. You know, we see him there in the will in the water, we see him in the wilderness, we see him there at the seashore, and then we see him right here in this synagogue. Where Mark now actually begins his narrative of Jesus' ministry activities. And he picks it up, as we've talked in the in the previous message, approximately one year into Jesus' ministry. But starting here in Galilee, in this little city, northwest shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. And this is the city where Jesus determines to to make His base of operations for His Galilean ministry, which many do believe makes up about 80% of Jesus' ministry time was there spent in Galilee. And so Mark takes us to the local synagogue there in Capernaum. In verse 21, he hits us with another one of his immediately's saying that immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And this really followed Jesus' normal pattern. This was His routine. 
walking into a city, he'd enter the synagogue and teach. And that was very much in line with the customary practice of that day. If you had a visiting rabbi coming into town, they would welcome him to come in and teach the people. This would have been no surprise to those folks there at all for Jesus to stand up and and read Scripture and make some comments. Now, Mark doesn't share with us Jesus' entry into his hometown, Nazareth, but he goes into Nazareth, and if you remember, he reads the the Scripture there, Isaiah, and he tells the people uh, that this passage I just read has come to fulfillment in your hearing. Well, that encounter didn't go so well as it ended in the Nazarene community looking for the nearest cliff to throw Jesus off. Now, initially, they received what Jesus had to say, but as Jesus pressed matters, I mean, it is, they just came out with vehement hatred and, and, and wrath. And Jesus, right there, experientially realizes that a prophet, even the prophet, is not accepted in his own hometown. And so he splits the scene and he decides to set up his camp in Capernaum. Now here in verse 21, at this point in his ministry, it's hard to tell how, how widely known and acknowledged Jesus was as a teacher, but clearly he was recognized enough to be given this opportunity to teach the people. And so he does so, Mark tells us in verse 22, as he teaches, the people were astonished at his teaching. And then Mark tells us why they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. These folks were wowed by Jesus' teaching because it was quite different from what they were used to hearing. I mean, his teaching had a very distinct flavor about it. It wasn't characteristic of the common rabbinical rhetoric of you know reciting a passage of the Torah and then you know giving some you know quoting some what previous rabbis had said about it or reiterating these these oral traditions or codes passed down from previous rabbis. This is what they were used. To, this is what they were subjected to. Most of which ended up becoming the Mishnah or the Talmud. Those of you who are familiar with the Catholic Church, this would be somewhat similar to the to the liturgical recitings of creeds and prayers. and I mean, kind of like what Tim and John were talking about in the previous hour. It just, just has this flavor of just dead, formal orthodoxy. Just no life in it. No reality in it. And the people were accustomed to hearing just creeds and codes and, and, and just opinions of men, of, of dead rabbis that really, that really carried no authoritative weight to what, anything they had to say. Not Jesus. See, Jesus was cut from a different cloth. He steps on the scene. He opens his mouth and there was an accompanying authoritative weight to the things that he had to say. And and the people recognize. Listen, this is not the testimony of his disciples here. This is the testimony of all the people that were in that synagogue. And let me tell you, most of those folks were lost Jews. Right? I think that's safe to believe, to see. He was rejected by the Jews largely. Jesus spoke, and all who heard him in that synagogue, they recognized there's something different here. This man is speaking with some kind of authority that those previous rabbis have not. And that's because Jesus is the authority. Mark's not shy in his presentation of Jesus to us. We saw that, right, in the opening words of this this gospel. Right there in verse 1, Mark lays it down. This man is the Son of God which is precisely the reason he grabbed the attention of the people under that roof of that synagogue because he spoke like the Son of God. 
This was the testimony. You remember? Remember the, the chief priests and the Pharisees? They, they sent the officers off, arrest him, bring him back. We got we to we take this guy out. And so they go there to arrest him, and they come back empty-handed, and the Pharisees are like, why didn't you bring him with you? And, and he says, they were saying, we never heard a man speak like this. I mean, it, his words just, they penetrate. There, there's reality that we, we couldn't do anything to this man. Never seen anything like it. What is Mark doing here in introducing this scene to us? He's bringing to our attention the authority of Jesus Christ. He's already shown us the baptism of Jesus. He's shown us the temptation of Jesus. He's shown us something of the preaching of Jesus. He's he's shown us the call of Jesus. Now he's going to allow us to peer in and see the authority of Jesus. And he begins in this synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus opens his mouth speaks some truth, and immediately something takes place. There's a reaction. There's an immediate impact. Mark hits us with another immediate in verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, you know, it's one thing to claim authority, but there's, it's another thing to actually have it, right? And if Jesus is the actual, if He's the ultimate authority, what what has to be true of him? N- not only that he just speak it, but he's got to demonstrate it, right? And he cried out that this unclean spirit, in verse twenty four, what have we to what have what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I I, I know who you are, the, the Holy One of God. Jesus speaks authoritative truth and immediately it gets the attention of the demonic realm. There was a man in their midst. Now whether they knew about it before Jesus stood up to speak or not, we don't know. That's unclear. But what is clear is once Jesus started speaking truth, the demon manifested himself inside this man and he started speaking directly to Jesus in rather terrified fashion. What? Have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? You think these demons were aware of Jesus' authority? You better believe it. Matthew records an instance where, where these demons say something similar, but, but they, he adds, have you come to destroy us before the time? The time. What is that? The time. See, there was a time these demons were awaiting they knew something was They were anxiously aware of a time coming. And it was the time of their judgment. They're on a short leash. They didn't know how long, but they knew it was coming. It was a certain matter. And no doubt Satan, their master, had told them, had informed them of that ancient uh, prophetic word where way back in the garden, God said directly to Satan, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And those heels had now finally found the earth. And he was in this, standing in this synagogue on the shoreline of Capernaum about to do some authoritative bruising. And he does so right here at the end of verse 25 by saying, be silent and come out of him. And notice, brother, notice what happens next. There's no more dialogue. Action takes place. 
Verse 26, And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. You see, if the Son of, Son of God demands come out, that's exactly what's going to happen. That's going to take place. And this thing did so. Yes, it did so kicking and screaming and with loud crying. I mean, this thing was screaming on its way out, but He did it. He left the man. He obeyed Jesus' command. That's unquestionable authority. Now, there's a number of things we could bring out of this text, but I want to zero in on something I think is very noteworthy here. Brother, notice the contrasting responses to Jesus. You see it? I mean, surely you do. The contrast between the human realm and the spiritual realm. It's quite striking. Notice how fallen man responds to Jesus and how these wicked fallen demons of darkness respond. We already saw how impressed these people are. Mark uses the word astonished here. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Now, you can imagine it, right? Oh, did you hear that? Man, that's quite impressive. That's some incredible stuff. We should, we, ask, we should ask him back next week to preach to us. I mean, he sure beats the old windbag Josephus who just stands there and gives us his, you know, his nuanced interpretations of the law. We're getting kind of tired of that. Who cares about what rabbi so-and-so says? And, I mean, this guy speaks, and he speaks truth, and he speaks it right to us. We want, him, we want to hear him again. He, he has authority in what he says. I mean, just look at him. He looks at you with those eyes and they just penetrate right through you. That voice. I mean, Jesus made a great impact on these people. Yet, where was the repentance? He was absent. As I mentioned, Jesus made the same impression at Nazareth. Uh, Luke tells us, the same impression at least at the beginning. Luke tells us in Luke 4.22, all the people, he's standing in the synagogue, he's teaching, all the people spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And yet, at the end of that same day, as I mentioned, they're looking to throw him off a cliff. You see, mankind can be so easily, superficially impressed by impressive people. And yet it goes no deeper than the mere surface. Surface level. These folks were amazed at Jesus, even, even taken back a bit at His words and His authoritative power. I mean, look at verse 27. They were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Wow, we, we've never seen anything like this. Where's the town crier? The folks need to find out about this guy. Send somebody out. We gotta, we, we, this has to be spread abroad. I mean, contrast that with verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you, have you come to, de to destroy us? You see the difference? Guilty men. Guilty men encounter Jesus and they're impressed. They're astonished. They're amazed. Demons encounter Jesus and they're terrified. And the difference is found in those words at the end of verse 24. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. You see, these people have no clue 
who is standing before them. It's, it's completely shrouded from their understanding. He's just another man. He's just a mere man to them. I mean, some of them knew his parents or probably knew something of his parents. I mean, certainly the people in Nazareth did, and Nazareth is not very far away from Capernaum. Uh, you can imagine this, right? I mean, who, who is this guy who's doing the preaching? Where did he come from? Well, you know, Mary, Mary, the one who sells the, the frankincense and myrrh popery down there. She's always serving the community. Just a wonderful woman. Oh, Joseph, you know, bless his soul. He was a great carpenter. I remember when him and his boys came and they laid the foundation to the, to the synagogue. And, you know, they're, they're recollecting these people. But, but this guy, he's a son of a carpenter. Who ever heard of a son of a carpenter becoming a preacher? But, but he is, in my quite impressive at that. I mean, his style, his delivery. I mean, would you look at it? I mean, you can even cast out demons. Whoever heard a carpenter turned demon caster? I mean, this is quite an impressive thing. Mary, you must be quite proud of your son. Jesus, can you do, can you do it again? Or do a trick for it. We, we like tricks. We like to be impressed. We like to be excited. That, that's the human response. The demons? Well, they were rightly terrified. Why? Because they know exactly who Jesus is. It's no mystery to them. They know this God. He is holy. He is God. And He is the God man. He is the Holy One of God. And He holds the keys of death and Hades and the shaft of the bottomless pit. And when He says open, it opens. And when He says shut, it shuts. That's who this man is standing before them. And when he says, the time has come, the time for judgment happens. And they knew this. They knew that it was coming. And the ramifications of that are fierce and forever. Every foul fiend knows something of the just judgment that awaits them. These demons knew it. And they were greatly horrified by such a prospect. Trembling in his presence. Lord, don't come. You haven't come to judge us yet, have you? No, please send us into the pigs, something, anything but, to, but, but the fierceness of your wrath. Anything. Jesus' presence put these demons into a pure panic mode. Meanwhile, man, in all his arrogance, slaps Jesus on the back and says, Good job, preacher. Good job. You, you, you astonish us some more. Please impress us. Don't, you know, don't, we, want you, we, want, we want you to impress us, but don't press in on us. Jesus, you just stay in your lane and preach the real nice-sounding platitudes to us, and, but, but don't step on our toes. We don't want to get too carried away here. We, we like these good things that you say, but don't, you know, let's keep this relationship favorable. Don't be saying, you know, don't, don't, we don't have to get all involved in your demands and claims. Don't, don't tell me how to live my life. I mean, I'll throw a few coins in the offering box. I'll put the nativity seed in my yard, but, you know, everything will be hunky-dory. We don't need to go get too carried away here. You see, these folks standing in this synagogue 2,000 years ago, they're not any different in mankind today. Not any different. We'll gladly pay tribute to Jesus. And even express our amazement at his, at his manger scene you know, once a year, right? We went through Windcrest the other night. Just a lot of manger scenes. Whether they're Christians or not, I don't know. But we love to keep Jesus in the manger. You know, keep, keep him that helpless, harmless babe, you know. And we'll put it away on New Year's Day or 
Well, maybe New Year's Eve because we don't want to see baby. We don't want to subject baby Jesus to our drinking and partying, you know. But, but let, let's we'll put him away. We'll bring him out next year for a few weeks, and and we'll have some peace on earth and goodwill to men. That's a good theme, right? Goodwill to men, and but we don't we don't want to hear the man Jesus. We don't want to hear that kind of talk. We don't want to hear, forsake all and follow me. We don't want to hear, repent or you will perish. We don't want to hear, let the dead bury their dead. You, you enter in at the narrow gate. He, he who saves his life will lose it. Whoever, whoever finds his life, they're going to lose it. You pursue this life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel, that's the one who's going to find it. If you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Now, those words make us feel a little uncomfortable. You know, we, how about we turn the volume down on those and let's turn the volume up on away in the manger, right? Let's get that going. Let's sing some songs of astonishment. Oh, come all ye faithful. Come, come, let us adore Him. Yes, the, 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 give glory to the newborn King. And All true. Yes, that's true. And it's wonderful. Amen. I, I love singing those songs. But it, but it all just tends to be peripheral with folks. Just a bunch of pomp and circumstance. All muddled up with greed and selfishness and with Jesus really nowhere in it. And I'm not bashing Christmas here. I celebrate Christmas. I celebrate the Christ's incarnation. Gladly so. But you see, joy to the world only began in those swaddling clothes. It didn't end there. The babe in that manger grew up and preached a message of repentance. A message that strips man of all his self-deluded pride and vain confidence. He grew up overcoming every obstacle aimed to take him out. He grew up with his eyes fixed on that cross where he saw fear and death and the devastating judgment of God. And despite that horrible prospect, he said, bring it on. Why? Love. His love for sinners. If you're a Christian here today, his love drove him to the cross. His love for you. He loved you so much He bore all your guilt and all your shame. But Jesus didn't come to impress us. Be a good example for us. He came to save us and to change us from the inside out. He came, us to, he came to transform lives. Let me ask you, is your life transformed? Has Jesus Christ transformed your life? If so, then yes, Christmas is, is, is something to get excited about, something you can celebrate. But if you don't know the life-changing Savior, it's just that, a life-changing Savior, then you have nothing to celebrate in Christmas. Because that babe in a manger is your judge, not your Savior. And He will judge you in all righteousness. And not one of your transgressions will escape that judgment. Meaning, every single sin you've committed, you will bear the eternal consequences for each and every one of them. My friend, just like those demons who trembled at His presence because they knew who He was, they, they feared Him because they knew it was coming. They were convinced of it. You, you ought to be trembling right beside them. Even more so because you've heard the gospel of His grace and, and you haven't repented and you haven't received Him. 
You haven't believed upon him to the Savior. Why? Because just like those folks standing in the synagogue, you're completely ignorant and blind to the realities of who Christ really is. You know, you know the real testament to man's natural blindness and ignorance of Christ? It's found right here. Jesus tells us, tell, tells these demons, be silent. Be silent. He didn't want the demons revealing his identity, so he tells them, basically tells the demon, shut your big trap, and, and, and he commands to come out of the guy. And you know what happens next? Exactly that. The demon obeys Jesus' command. Yes, he does a fit, throws a fit doing so, but he did exactly what he was told to do. Look at the end of verse 34. And he would not permit the demon to speak because they knew him. Jesus said, be silent. And immediately the demon stopped talking. The demon stopped talking about him. Again, unquestionable authority on display here. You, on the other hand, you who stand aloof or indifferent about Christ and Christ's claims upon your life, you actually have the audacity to ignore the commands of Jesus. Something you will dreadfully regret if you stay in that way. Sure, you, you see things that impress you about Jesus. Most folks do. But you don't see Him like these demons see Him. You don't. You don't see and understand Him to be the Holy One of God. Someone just terrifyingly majestic and wonderful and powerful and to be feared always. And so you just go on living your life presuming. Just presuming everything's going to be alright. I give once in a while. I show up to church once in a while. I, when I get around to it, I read my Bible. Thinking everything's okay, but you couldn't be more mistaken. You see, Jesus' incarnation changes everything. No human being is afforded the option of just checking out and being indifferent about His coming. Because His coming guarantees another coming. Another coming where it, it will be the day of reckoning. A day these demons were shuddering to face. Mark is wanting us to see that this Jesus of Nazareth is far more than a mere man. This is God robed in human flesh. And so He provides this snapshot of Jesus' authority. Authority over demons in this synagogue. And even though these people couldn't figure it out, Jesus still made quite a splash. Look what Mark has to say here in verse 28. And at once, His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. But Mark's not done. He now moves from Jesus' authority over demons to Jesus' authority over disease. Verse 29, And immediately He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon with Andrew, or and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. She began to serve them. But you see, Jesus' day wasn't finished here. <laughs> Verse 32, at, at, at that evening, same day, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city 
was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Hmm. This is Jesus. The one who, who controls what demons say. And the one who determines there's a fever, there's a disease, I want to make it disappear. And is able to do it. And he was doing it right here. In massive fashion. The whole city's coming to him. In full command. Full command of invisible powers and invisible molecules. The God-man. Mark's putting the God-man on full display here for us. I mean, the disciples must have been freaking out at this point, right? I mean, they're just asking him to call him. They knew something of him. They've been, you know, they've been with him for a year. They've seen some stuff. But, I mean, just seeing what Jesus did down at the local synagogue... And now they, they no more step foot into Peter's house. And, and, and Jesus has Peter's mother-in-law going from bedridden with a fever to up and serving them lunch. Just like that. I mean, that just doesn't happen. But it was happening. So they're like pinching themselves, wondering if they're dreaming, they're looking at each other, what's going on here? Who is this man we're even following? We see throughout the Gospels they were constantly confused about that, right? Authority over demons and diseases. Mark tells us Jesus' authoritative demonstrations they created such a stir in the city that everybody just ran. You can imagine this, right? If we saw this happen, if Christ came, everybody's running to their arthritic grandparents and their fever-laden you know, loved ones and they're bringing them to, to Peter's house. Can you imagine? Imagine your home and it's just flooded with the people from the city. That, that was Peter's house that night. They were grabbing everyone they could from demon-oppressed children to the local town drunk who's got you know, liver cancer. They're just bringing everybody to Jesus. You name it. I mean, can you imagine Peter's front door must have looked like City Hall on Election Day. Just people lined up with all their ailments and all kinds of anticipation. And yeah, we got to fight through that because, listen, this was not some phony Benny Hill event. Not Benny Hill, but Benny Hinn. Same thing, about as comical, but sad at the same time. This, is, this was real. This really happened. If Jesus was here healing people, I would have done the same thing. We'd be finding some way to get Don down here and bringing him before Jesus. We would. But you see, this is where we tend to run this whole thing amok in our day. We look at this scene. And we, we, we make some bad assumptions, some segments of the Christianity anyway. We assume Jesus healed everyone. And he, and he cast out every demon. And then we run with that assumption, assuming He does the same thing today. It's simply not true. Yet on this occasion, Mark does tell us many were healed and many demons were cast out. But he's careful to use the word many. Not all. Not all of them were. And yes, you can turn over to Matthew's account and he does use the word every. He says every disease and every affliction Jesus healed. I think he's talking about kinds there. But, but it's not, brethren, it's not foreign for Scripture to use hyperbole. It's not. The, 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 scripture, the writers of Scripture use hyperbole just like you and I do. And, you know, it's not intended to be, took, you know, be taken literally. It's, it's intended to, to emphasize something, to, to give a, an accurate picture of the whole. Of course, not every single person was at the, the door of Peter's house. Likely a very 
large majority of the city was, though. So much so that to say the whole city, Mark here, he's saying the whole city, uses that term. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a false representation, but it's, it's, it's hyperbole to point out this was no small crowd gathered at Peter's home. And many of those folks walked away healed. But sadly, we have prophets today of self-interest taking such scenarios and creating doctrines of healing with them. It does so much disservice to Christianity. Really nothing more than a bunch of shysters exploiting people that are hurting and desperate. And, and my own father was damaged by such teaching. Basically, just, it just turns Jesus into some genie. Let's rub Him, make our wish, and that comes true. Going to use them to our, our own advantage. Teaching that, you know, it suggests it's not God's will for God's people to, to suffer, to be sick. If you can just muster up enough faith in Jesus, He'll heal you from every disease and every sickness. It's a bunch of hogwash. Listen, is Jesus sovereign over sickness and disease? I mean, does he or does he not have authority to heal? He, he most certainly does. We know that. But, and passages like this ought to give us hope that He will heal us or those whom we love. But, but we don't want to be so foolish, brethren, as to, to conclude that it's always the will of Jesus to heal people. See, really what's happening in all these healings, it's a, there's, a, there's a spiritual parallel here of what Jesus does spiritually for people. You come to Christ, you bring your loved one to Christ, and they, they come to Him in faith. He does heal them of their spiritual disease, sin. It's the most significant disease. See, false religion always gets, gets carried away in the physical. It removes the focus from the spiritual to the physical. But we don't want to just, I mean, it, 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 you feel tension there, right? Because the truth is, Someone might not be healed because of a lack of faith. I think we need to be honest and, and, and come to that conclusion and see that in Scripture. Because Jesus does say faith will move mountains, right? There, there can be certain events that, that, that may occur or may not occur due to a lack of faith. That's true. As uncomfortable and as much as we might not like that, I think we need to be honest with Scripture. That's true. But that doesn't mean it's always God's will to heal people. See, ours is to submit to trust, to cry out to him. Because Jesus is still in the business of healing people. He's still in the business of restoring people. He has countless times since He ascended on high. And our God is a prayer-hearing God who hears and answers. That's why we're going to have a week of prayer and fasting, emphasizing that, seeking His face, casting our burdens and cares upon Him because He cares for us and because He has the power to do what we're asking Him to do. He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. He's still in the business of performing both spiritual and physical miracles. But again, doesn't always mean it's His will to heal. That's not even being true to Scripture. I mean, the Apostle Paul tells us, right, it's not only given unto us to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for His sake. And God designs that suffering Himself in whatever specific custom way is best for you and best for His glory. And you know what? Jesus, we're told Jesus, get your mind around this. We're told Jesus learned obedience through suffering. That's what Scripture says. And if the, the sinless Son of God 
but in obedience to something. How, how much more we who are sinful learn from suffering, right? There's a lot to learn. Suffering may not be pleasant, but God has purposes in it. It's working good things. Now, I realize this passage is actually sharing that Jesus is alleviating people from suffering. He's healing people, lots of people. And praise God for that. It still remains true today. But I think it's very important to point out and have, that we have firmly settled in our minds and our hearts that it's not always God's will to heal, even His own people. It's important that we're ever aware of this, I think, and reminded that you and I, every, every single person in this building right now, we are currently experiencing the incredible kindness of God in that God is not allowing us to experience what we all currently deserve right now. And what is that? Every single one of us deserve to be rotting in the miserable flame and torment of hell right now. Do you believe that? That's what, that's what our sin deserves. You know, one of the things that suffering proves is, is it ends up exposing what we really think we deserve. It does. And what we really think mankind deserves. I can stand here and give you all kinds of theological uh, explanations and answers to the problem of disease and suffering at all being linked to sin. Why it exists and why God does heal some people and doesn't heal others. Um, that's That's true. But it's one thing to sit there and hear it while, while disease and suffering are far removed from you. And not really in the, in the, in the wheelhouse of your, your current situation. But it's a whole other thing when it's sitting right in your lap. I was telling Tim, it's, it was difficult to be up there in Michigan to see Don laying there in the bed. Just basically a shell of a man that he was weeks ago. You know, he was out there, you know, he'd be out there putting around the yard, he's mowing, he's, you know, doing this, that, and the other, driving and shopping. Now, now he's just laying there, unable to walk, unable to talk, unable to even communicate his suffering, really. Unable to do the littlest things that we, you and I don't even think about daily that we do. That, that's tough to witness. It's tough to process. I, but, but process we must as Christians, right? It's essential that we do so with minds settled on what Scripture has to say about suffering. Otherwise, you end up with your emotions just taking over and you're just taking down a bad path. And if you've never faced a situation where someone near and dear to you is suffering, I mean, buckle up because it's coming. It's eventually going to come. You're going to come face to face with this thing called disease sickness and death and someone very near to you in that situation and it's not a pretty picture it's just not yes for the christian it holds forth a glorious end i mean that's the gateway into glory but you see the interim in the interim these things are hard hard to encounter and process and endure it just Brother, it's just a broken world. You get outside your own little bubble and you start seeking to serve people and get involved and evangelize and, and make an impact on people's lives. You realize just, just how devastating effect sin has made in this world. Yes, you got your own life, but you get out there and you see things like, wait, what? 
you know, sometimes it doesn't require answers. It just requires a genuine, compassionate heart, a demonstration of love. It doesn't necessitate us trying to figure it all out, and, but just simply trusting in an all-wise, all-powerful God who's, who's too wise to make a mistake, too loving to, 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 to give us needless grief. He knows what He's doing. Whatever my God ordains is right. We sing it, right? Whatever He ordains is right. Can we sing it when things don't go the way we want them to go? Suffering, it, it, it necessitates us keeping our minds stayed on Jehovah and eternity and His unshakable truth. And you know what, brother? And that can provide us a peace that passes all understanding that this world can't comprehend. They look at that and like, What? And it's important, brother, because failure to do so will make you vulnerable into bad thinking and taking a bad path. Friday night, we were watching uh, this Christmas movie about this, um, this man in the movie was being portrayed as a pastor. Was a pastor. He stepped away from pastoring. Why? Well, because his wife and his daughter uh, came down with cons- consumption and died. Consumption's the term in the late 1800s for tuberculo- tuber- tuberculosis. They died. And he, his heart was hardened against God. See, his problem was equating faith to the answered requests for healing. A lot of people do that. A lot of people teach that. That's bad theology. It's basically, if God doesn't give me what I want, then... Uh, This is a sham. I'm out. Mark's point in bringing all this healing to our attention is not to teach us that faith in Jesus equates to healing and health. That's not not the goal here. He's showing us the snapshot of Jesus healing droves of people with all kinds of different diseases and ailments to underscore for us the authority of Jesus over disease. And you know what? You demonstrate authority over disease. You don't demonstrate it by just allowing disease to take its normal path, right? There's, was there any demonstration of authority in that? You, you demonstrate it by reversing it immediately, right? The natural course of sickness and disease. Everyone's expecting this. Boom. Gone. Only God can do that. See, in order for Jesus to truly be the Messiah... He has to demonstrate Himself as a reigning King. A a King who truly rules and reigns over all other powers, including the powers of darkness, including the powerful effects of sin on this created world, including disease and suffering. And Jesus demonstrates just that in these verses. You see, what's also true about authority is it always has the final say. And that say can be no and that say can be yes and you know one of the greatest tests of being a child of God is your ability to submit to that authority yes praise God he, he gives us the desires of our hearts we we're talking earlier about God trusting God for the impossible we, we want to be that kind of people but you know what we got to be careful that we don't make our impossible God's will what I want to happen that's God's will Yes, we want to make our requests known to God. We want to pour out our heart to Him. We want to trust Him for impossible things. But we want to do so with a heart of submission to what He is pleased to disclose and, and, and 
work out, right? That's the true test of a child of God. And I think God brings every one of His children into that. Can you submit to this? I've had to face that in my life many times. Many times. Jesus has all authority because He is the authority. There's there's no authority greater. He says says they're standing before the disciples before He departs. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. There's no greater authority than that. Jesus had it. I mean, do, do you embrace that? Does that does that give you rest? I find rest in that. Or or does that give you unrest? Some anxiety, some uncertainty. Oh, oh no, I See, there can only be peace on earth when you are when when the one who controls everything that's happening in the earth is your advocate and he's not your judge anymore. He's your shield, he's your refuge in the storms. He's your confidence when when all, even when your health is failing. Even when you're in the ER and you don't know what's happening next. <laughs> See, the reason why these demons had such unrest is they had no hope. Jesus was not their advocate. They were waiting for Him to give that final judgment and they were terrified about it. They had no hope of salvation. However, those who humble themselves before this Christ and trust Him, place their faith in Him, They have all the reason for hope. Abundant hope. As they can rest in the loving arms of this One who controls all things. And and you're in His hand. No one can pluck you out of that hand. Nothing's going to happen to you in that hand except what He is pleased to to give you and bless you with. And you're right there with Him the whole time. He never forsakes His own. You know, we were talking earlier about hyper-Calvin. And, you know, Tim was talking about, he, didn't, he never even heard of John 3.16. That's hard to believe. But there's people like that, right? You know, it's radical to him. But you see, see the, danger, the danger, real danger in hyper-Calvinism is for children who grow up under the Gospel. Because you see, the thing, thing in Scripture is, to the Greeks, the Gospel was what? Foolishness. That's a joke. He's religious people. It's just a joke to them. But people that grow up under truth, what was it? What was it to the Jews? It was a stumbling block. And children, that's what you got to overcome. A stumbling block. Don't let Jesus Christ and his gospel be a stumbling block. I mean, some of you, you know John 3 16, you can recite it backwards. You know John, uh, Psalm 39 and all these psalms you've been memorizing, all these passages you've been memorizing in Sunday school. Praise God for that. It's intended not to make you trip. It's, tr- it's intended by God to cause you to trust Him and believe in Him. And I'm not just talking to children. I'm talking to some of you who've been stumbling over the Gospel for years and for decades. God has given you the truth to believe in the truth to the saving of your soul. Oh, you don't want to appear before this Christ with all the knowledge of the Gospel and not embrace Him as Savior and Lord. That is the ultimate test. Do you, do you bow to King Jesus as the authority of your life or do you resist Him? Continue to resist Him. When He extends His arms, come. Come and you will find, you will find my yoke easy. My burden light. Well, the burdens you bear now, they're horrid. But the burden I give on you is glorious. It's light. And I'll be with you. I'll be with you to the end. And I'll take all your burdens and I'll take all your sin away. 
What glorious Savior is Jesus? This one who has all authority. Father, we are thankful for such a gospel. Thank you that you rule and control everything in our life, Lord. It's such a rest. Your sovereignty is such a such a peaceful thing to, to your people, Lord. We're thankful that we don't have to fret and worry about what happens today and tomorrow and about food and clothing and about our sicknesses and our health. And Lord, you, it's, it's all in Your hand. Lord, we pray for greater faith to trust You. We pray for greater submission to this King Jesus. Lord, save in our midst. Have mercy on our loved ones. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.